0: about how Nehemiah he had an insurmountable task and folks you may be standing in front of an insurmountable mountain there may be something in your life right now that just you're standing in front of it and it looks so huge we need each other I mentioned that earlier we need the church but you also need the church so that you can be the church you as an individual we need one another God created and commissioned the church for his mission and for us to be separate from that you're gonna get picked off so we need to connect with people so that we can connect them to the vision and in order to connect people with the vision we need to understand that here is no longer good enough and that there there is better than here but last but not least in order for people to catch that vision, once they catch that they understand that here is no longer good enough and there is so much better than here people will catch that vision, they will capture that and they will go on mission and take that risk but this morning we can't be blind to the fact that anytime, time whether you're a believer in God and in Christ or not if you're an atheist and agnostic and you're doing things in the world and you're, you're calling business meetings and have these dreams that you want to dream whether you're a believer in God or not, anytime someone takes the risk and goes on mission you will face opposition but I can tell you As believers in Jesus, whenever you take that risk for the cause of Christ to bring people into the kingdom of God, you will face opposition. The Christian life isn't safe. Never has been, never will be. Jesus Christ was crucified. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. And on and on and on goes the list. It is not safe you and I will face opposition. And the opposition's sole goal is to kill the mission, to destroy it, to keep it from happening, to end redemption in someone's life. We need to understand opposition is a part of this. Discouragement will come. And the same is for Nehemiah. So if you would, please open up to the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to read a few verses and a few sections in Nehemiah. Nehemiah himself faced that insurmountable task. He took the risk. And very quickly, I know we've been doing this for several weeks, but very quickly, Nehemiah faced opposition when he came to Jerusalem so if you would open to Nehemiah or pull that up on your phone and uh, we're going to start in chapter 2 we're going to do a few skips around so chapter 2 verse 10 when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this heard about what Nehemiah was about to do that they were going to construct the walls, rebuild the walls. When they heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Would you go ahead and skip over to chapter 2, verse 19. I'd like for you to notice what happens in the opposition. Does it increase? Does it decrease? Are there more people involved? Verse 19 when Sanballat the Hornite Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it they mocked and ridiculed us what is this that you were doing they asked are you rebelling against the king turn your page or scroll to chapter 4 verse 1 and we'll read through verse uh, 12 when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? If even a fox climbed upon it, he would break break down their wall of stones. And this is Nehemiah. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in their land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from their sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So... We rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all of their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And this is what they did. They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. And stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile at the Batcave. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work.
1: time God's people go on mission, they will face opposition. Anytime God's people have a vision and a plan to do something bigger than an individual, to do something more than just what I could do, they will face opposition. Enemies will arise. People will try to stop the things that are getting done for the glory of God. Because God's mission has been, since sin entered the world, to redeem and restore that which has been broken. God's mission is plain, and it hasn't changed over 2,000 years. God is on mission to redeem and restore people, every single person on the face of the earth, is a part of God's mission. Every single individual, every person in your family, every person at work, every person at school, every good neighbor, every bad neighbor, God is on mission to redeem and restore. And the opposition wants to stop that. Wherever it can. Wherever it can. In Nehemiah and the Israelites' case, uh, there was some pretty clear opposition. He knew who the opposition was. And we see it here in our verses that we were reading today. Chapter 2, verse 10. Sambaloth the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite. Those were the enemies, those were the guys who didn't like what God was doing. God had a plan to restore the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah heard it. Nehemiah said, yes, I'm going to do it. Nehemiah recruited others to join him. And they began to do the work. Even before they began to do the work, the enemy had already heard. And the enemy was already planning to stop that from happening. But notice what happens. As Stephen alluded to as we were reading the verses, notice what happens to the enemy as we progress through the story. Just a few verses later, in verse 19, now we've got Sambaloth the Hornite, to buy the Ammonite and the Arab people. There's an increase. Just as Nehemiah began to recruit for the mission and the mission grew in favor of it, people came from all over to join the mission to be a part of something bigger than themselves, so too the enemy's group grew. And if you are a, stu- a studier of history, you know this is true. And any major conflict or war that's ever happened across the world, across time and space, both sides always grow at the same rate, or at varying rates, but they always are both growing. Everybody's looking for somebody else to come to their side. The enemy does it too. It's not just the good guys that get more helpers. The enemy does the same thing. Notice a couple verses later, or a couple chapters later. When he mentions them again in chapter four, we've got Sambalot, here again, Tobiah, here again, the Arabs, here again, and now more people again. The Ammonites and the men of Ashdod. So we've increased from just a couple people, opposition that that is known and probably maybe even somewhat manageable. Nehemiah is like, ah, we could take them. We'll be alright. And now all of a sudden whole countries are coming against them this ragtag group of people who have decided to rebuild a wall which by the way would be their number one defense so they don't have their number one defense because they haven't finished building it yet and now the enemy seems completely insurmountable we can't stop them this is too much this is too many this is this is far beyond what we can handle Nehemiah identifies their motives very clearly when he says that they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. This wasn't because they were trying to get rich off the land themselves. This wasn't because of uh, personal issues. They just didn't like Nehemiah. They just didn't like Israelites. They just didn't like them. They didn't want them to to have favor. They didn't want them to live a good life. They didn't want them to advance and progress and, and do better and have more. They wanted them to be miserable. So too in our lives, sometimes the enemy just wants you to be miserable. They don't want you to find joy. They don't want you to find peace. They don't want you to find happiness. They don't want you to find security. They certainly don't want you to find Jesus. They just want you to suffer. Mean, vindictive. They don't want you to move forward in life. The enemy doesn't want to see you get educated. The enemy doesn't want to see you move beyond poverty the enemy doesn't want to see you break chains of addiction the enemy doesn't want to see you restore broken relationships it doesn't want to see any of that happen and I know that there are things in our lives that that seem completely out of our control you can't control how another person responds to you you can't but you can control your response and you can know That there's an enemy that's working. And not ignore it. Not pretend like it doesn't exist. Not act like everything's okay when you know that the world is crumbling around you. Because the truth of the matter is, we're all struggling. We're all facing opposition. Every single person in this room is facing opposition. Because the enemy hates the fact that you are here right now. We, we've probably seen, many of us, those cheesy things that go on around Facebook, the little quote segments and stuff, and, and maybe we've shared them, and I don't mean to offend anybody by, by saying they're cheesy. Um, but but those things that say things like, the devil hates it when you open your Bible, or the devil runs and flee when you walk into church, or it, it's kind of these, these kind of cheesy, cliche lines. But the thing about cheesiness and clichéness is that there's elements of truth to it. The reality is the enemy literally hates it when you begin to put back together the broken pieces of your life. The enemy hates it when you begin to invest in the lives of your friends and your family who are hurting. And although you might not be able to fix it, although you have no answers, although you can't provide for them financially or or support them in their time of sorrow the way that maybe you feel like you ought to, there's something more that's happening there than probably you realize and maybe your friend realizes it but the enemy certainly realizes it because the best way to combat opposition is to continue to support one another is to continue to watch the backs of your friends and your family The enemy hates it when people begin to be redeemed. And like we said, the the opposition continued to increase as we went through the story here. We see more and more coming. And just as negativity becomes contagious and breeds more negativity, opposition will quickly breed more opposition. We've probably felt this in some way in our lives, right? Anybody who's faced opposition in here has probably felt like, ah, I got hit once, not a big deal. And then you get hit again, they're like, "Okay." That, that was kind of painful. Then you get hit another time. And you're like, okay, I'm good now. We face those seasons in our lives, right? Where one thing hits us, and it kind of takes us aback. But we're like, that's not a big deal. You know, I, I love Jesus. I'm okay. Life's good. And you move on. And then you get hit again. And then you get hit again. And then you're laying on the ground, bloody, crying, hurting. And it seems like they're just stomping on your face. Until you just give in. That's the M.O. Of the, of the opposition. That's the M.O. of the enemy. Satan wants nothing more than to end the work of Jesus' disciples and the mission of the church. Satan wants nothing more than for you to feel like the opposition is too much. It's too hard. It's too painful. I'm not equipped correctly. I don't know the right things. I don't know enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I don't read my Bible enough. I don't go to church. Whatever. Satan wants nothing more than to feed those lies into your own head. And to live into those lies as if that's going to stop God from working. As if. Our shortfalls somehow mean God can't do more than us. As if my insufficiencies mean God is insufficient. And that's the biggest lie. Because it's in my insufficiencies that God is even more sufficient. It's in my insufficiencies that I no, no longer try to do it by myself, but I allow God to work through me and I allow God to move through me and I can face the opposition with somebody who actually stands a chance at beating the opposition. The opposition will try to remind you of, of places where you failed before. Places where you didn't measure up. And maybe it was somebody religious, maybe it was a church, maybe it was a pastor, told you, you didn't measure up. But that's not the truth of the gospel. That's not the truth of Jesus, that's not the truth we see here in Nehemiah. The enemy will try to deceive us in order to convince us that our God is powerless and he cannot deliver us. The enemy will try to divide us. I've mentioned it before in here. It seems like a lot of times when I preach, for whatever reason, that's just how it works. I don't have this intention or this mindset going into it. I talk about unity. And I talk about mission. And I talk about the fact that we can't do this by ourselves. I hate asking people for help. I I don't want to ask somebody to come, you know, hold a ladder for me. I'd rather climb up and See if I can't put that on a couple buckets and climb up on the top ring and and reach that by myself. I hate asking people for help. And that's a lie of the enemy. Because he knows when we don't ask for help, we are vulnerable. When we try to take care of it all by ourselves, we are weak. And the enemy sees the opportunity to strike. The enemy tries to divide us. The church, the body of Christ, tries to split us apart. Tries to make us at, at odds with each other. Tries to make us dislike each other. The enemy not only does that on a on a big scale, but now the enemy focuses their attention and they go to the inside. Internally, they begin to attack us. They, they attack our integrity or our character or our purity. Whatever it may be, you feel like you haven't measured up you feel like you haven't lived this life of holiness the way you ought to, the enemy will use that and try to tell you that now you are somehow disqualified from it all. Once again, a lie. Notice a pattern. Everything the enemy says is a lie. Everything the enemy says is a lie. And the enemy will always attack spiritual leadership. Whether it's in the church or whether it's in your house. I had a conversation not too long ago um, with a family and we were talking about spiritual warfare, for lack of a better term. And I don't mean that to sound super mystical, but, but just this element of I feel like we're kind of being attacked. And I feel like I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help my family. And the reminder I gave, which, which was not anything that I thought of, it came to me as I believe I had, because I had asked the Lord right before I came in the house to help me speak the words that need to be spoken. But what came to me and what I believe is so true is that I said, look back on your life. Just this last year. Think about the way that God has moved in your life over the course of this last year. See the things that you have done. See the spiritual milestones that have happened in your life and your children's lives. And now tell me, why wouldn't the enemy be attacking you? He sees you doing something. You're not just sitting on your rear end, waiting for time to pass by. He sees you doing something, so he's attacking you. And that's why he went after Nehemiah. They saw him doing something, so they went after him. If you don't feel like you're facing opposition, maybe you're not taking the risk that God's asking you to take. I don't know. That's between you and God. I don't know if you're taking the risk or not. But if you're not facing opposition, maybe that's a question to ask God, am I doing what you've asked me to do? Am I taking the risks you're asking me to take? We often, those of us who are, are Christian and, and have been believers for a long time, and maybe we can't find it in the, in the scripture or remember the passage, but we remember verses sometimes, we remember sayings and statements sometimes, um, and, and a lot of times some of us will quote things about Satan and, and will say, you know, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's the truth, too. That's the whole reason. The enemy is there is to steal, steal, kill, and destroy. We've got to understand that the reason the enemy is doing that is because he wants to stop the redemptive work of God. I said it already, but I'm saying it again because it's so important and it means everything to understand that God is doing something right now in our midst with you And the enemy wants to stop that. Because it wasn't about the wall. Like, it's not about the wall of Jerusalem. That's not what the enemy is about. The enemy is trying to stop Nehemiah, not because of the wall, but because he's doing what God has asked him to do. Does that make sense? It's not the wall. It's not the object. It's what's behind it. It's the motivation and the, and the reasoning behind it. It's the faithfulness to what God has asked him to do. It could be making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And if God asked you to do it, the enemy would still be against it. Because he hates people doing what God has asked him to do. Because the enemy knows that God is on mission to restore the world and fix the broken and painful situations of our lives. And one of the easiest ways that the opposition tries to stop that is by discouraging us. Tie into our, our unity aspect here. Look at Nehemiah chapter 4 verses 10 to 11. So, Meanwhile the people of Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble and we cannot rebuild the wall. Also our enemy said before they know it or see us we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. Just a couple chapters earlier, Nehemiah said that they were doing great work because they worked with all their heart. They were invested in the project. The wall was nothing when they started to build it, and now they've built it to half of its height. But as the enemy continues to increase, as the opposition continues to arise, as they continue to get beat from all ends, discouragement sets in, and they say before they know it, before we know it, or we even see them, they'll be right among us. And they'll put an end to our work. Discouragement is another lie of the evil one. He wants you to stop doing what you're supposed to be doing. Because you're not seeing results. Because results seem too far away. Because life's just too doggone hard. whether it's a spiritual nature or secular nature. Any one of us can be rendered completely unproductive when discouragement sets in. Whether it's saving for your retirement, whether it's saving for your college kids' fund, kids' college fund, Whether it's working out. Whether it's trying to grow spiritual, Whatever it is. When discouragement sets in. We stop doing it. The work stops. And nothing else happens. I want to show you a a video clip here. I don't normally watch um, college basketball. I'm not a big college sports fan in general. Um, But I caught this clip the other day. Um, and some of you are probably excited because March is right around the corner, so March Madness College Basketball, that's, that's right in front of us. Um, but I caught this clip from uh, the UCLA and Oregon game from a couple weeks ago, um, and I love a good sports game. Even though I don't watch a lot of college basketball, I love a good game that's, that's down to the wire, that's back and forth, that there's this tension building in the last couple minutes of the game, and you're like, who's gonna win? It could go either way. The, the games that are blowouts don't interest me much. I like that tension on those last couple minutes. And so this game had gone to overtime, so you already know it's a tension-filled game. And we've got just a couple minutes left of the game. UCLA is about to get the ball off the the shot or the rebound here. UCLA is down by two points with two minutes left in overtime. UCL now has the chance to make it down the court, make a basket, and either tie the game or maybe even shoot a three and, and go up by a point with just two minutes left in the game. But I want you to watch what happens here. As discouragement sets in, particularly for number one, UCLA player number one, if you look at my, the right screen here, he's right here. Watch what happens to him as he gets the ball. Um, he's a freshman by the name of Moses Brown. Notice what happens when he gets the ball, he makes a pass and discouragement sets in. And then notice what happens when his teammate Sophomore, Jalen Hands, comes into the scene. It's only like 30 seconds. Just watch this clip here. Bad pass.
0: Did you see it? What, what did uh, Moses Brown do? When he failed the pass, what did he do? Hung his head. Did you see the expression on his face? Right? He was out of the game. As a coach, if I ever saw one of my players with their head down out of the game, I pulled him. What did Jalen Hands do? He went up. I've never, ever seen that on a court or a field, anywhere. Jalen Hands literally came up, took his own hand, and lifted the kid's head. Why? Because the mission was on the line, right? This is no time for you to get out of the game. This is no time for you to get out of your head. There is a job to be done. And Jalen Hands understands that discouragement breeds discouragement. And it will go through the team. You've got two minutes and 12 seconds left in the game. You made a bad pass, suck it up, and let's go, right? Folks, discouragement breeds discouragement. Nehemiah understood that, Jalen Hands understood that, And, and quite frankly, the locker room talk, the practices that happen, I'm really curious. I'm really curious of the leadership in that locker room. For that sophomore to step up and do that, usually that's a, a senior or a junior that comes and puts an arm around, but that's a sophomore, that's a young man. Discouragement breeds discouragement, and folks, if we have our head down, one, we don't know who we're fighting. When your head is down, you don't know who you're fighting at all. And when your head down is down, you don't know who you're fighting for. And with your head down, you can quickly forget the mission that you're on. Folks, Nehemiah said, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord and how great and awesome he is. Right? And then he said, fight for your brothers. He makes it personal. When you talk about family, when you talk about kids, when you bring the family into it, it becomes personal. Mama and Papa Bear come out. Grandma and Grandpa Bear come out. Aunt and Uncle come out. My niece... She's starting to date this guy. Uncle Bub is no longer Uncle Bub. I go into a different mode because that's my girl. That's my niece. I'm protecting her. Nehemiah pulls that. He says, remember your brothers, your sisters, your daughters, your sons. Remember your families. Remember who you're fighting for. With our heads down, we don't know who we're fighting. And two, we don't know who we're fighting for any longer. They're not in our sight. They're not in our vision. We need to have contact, eye contact with our mission and our vision and who we're fighting for. Folks, we've got to remember how big our God is too. We've got to remember who's fighting for us. Nehemiah says our God will fight for us. He pulls from Moses in Exodus. As the Israelites were about to move forward in the desert, Moses says, the Lord will fight for you. Folks, we fight from the victory. We don't fight from loss. We don't fight from defeat. We're not meant to do that. And so as we're starting to land the plane here today, I want to give you a few things from Nehemiah's playbook that we can take out and take with us. You've heard a lot about unity, you've heard a lot about being the church and needing the church. Folks, we need Jalen Hands in our midst. You might be a Jalen Hands. Someone who hasn't done this and been around the, the bin a whole lot, feels like you can't really offer a whole lot, but the encouragement that you can bring The fact that you can go over and lift up somebody's head because you've connected with people we need the encourager in the body of Christ you need the courager encourager in the body of Christ I don't think there's anyone in here that at some point or another needs somebody to come around and say I got you back I'm with you I'm with you but remember who you're fighting for I want you to understand what Nehemiah also does. As we read the scripture this morning, you saw how the opposition mounted and multiplied. We already identified that. And you might be going, hey Ambrose, he's going to name out the enemy quite often because he's writing a book. He's writing a, a portion of history. But notice every time that he names them, Sanballat. Tobiah, Sambalat Tobiah, Sambalat Tobiah. Folks, Nehemiah calls out the enemy by name. He calls out the enemy by name. Speaking with Matthew, talking about this sermon. He said the first thing that we do in military before we go on mission is we identify the enemy there's a description there's a location there's a makeup there's an identity we need to understand who we're combating against we need to know who we're fighting for in law enforcement if they're going after someone, what is it that they're given? they're given a description of the assailant They have to identify the enemy. Quite often, we as Christians take the passive position. We'll quote scripture, which is really great. But we also take the passive position. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. It'll be fine. I totally agree with that. But there's a sense that we cower. The enemy is a deceiver and will always try to be un or try to go masked and in disguise and incognito. But you've got to call out the enemy for who the enemy is and call him out by name. You need to identify what you're fighting against. And sometimes, sometimes that person that you're fighting against or that enemy that you're fighting against is right there in the mirror this is from uh, Creed of the Rocky series uh, I only remember like Rocky 1, 2, 3, and 4 um, didn't really even know that this was out and I caught this, this this movie while on vacation and this scene really struck me because this is Adonis johnson creed who's apollo in the series who's apollo's son apollo dies in uh, rocky 4 i believe and now adonis johnson creed is trying to have his own career but under his own name he doesn't want to use his father's name he wants to earn it himself i respect that right but the man he who called he calls Unk is rocky rocky balboa in his retirement And Rocky wants nothing to do with the ring any longer. He's like, i fought, and I'm done. But somehow he convinces him. And with every Rocky movie and every Creed movie, you know there's going to be a montage, a training montage. And so this is a part of the training montage. And Rocky puts him in front of the mirror and tells him to start punching. And so he starts punching. And now Rocky no longer being kind of like the bullheaded kind of he becomes the sage in the moment and he says what happened when you throw a punch what happened the person throws another punch at right at me as soon as i throw a punch he throws a punch folks sometimes you are your own enemy. You are in your way, and you are the one fighting against you. Sometimes it's not the the devil. And you need to call yourself out. You've got to call yourself out. If it's Satan, call Satan out. If it's you, call yourself out. Otherwise, you're going to be unproductive. last two things Nehemiah notices a few things in the mission the people are discouraged there's threat from all angles so what's he do? he says therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall in, ex- in the exposed places posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows the mission dis- doesn't change at all but the method did Nehemiah identified and fortified the exposed places the weak places on the wall I gotta ask you today what are your weak places? what are your exposed places? because exposed places places allow for ambush easy access to you by the enemy for example it could be pornography pornography could be your your issue it could be the opposition and your exposed places are your computer and your phone how do you fortify those you have somebody that you know very very well that will hold you accountable that will put blockers on your phone and your computer or they have that opportunity to know every keystroke and click on your computer and your phone. It's alcohol. And that is your enemy. That takes you out and ambushes you all the time. If that is it, it could be changing the route home, not past buying the bars that you normally go to, that you stumble out of later on. Whatever it may be. What are your exposed places? Those are just two examples that pulled out. But what are your exposed places? The mission's still on, but you got to fortify them. You've got to have people around you to help you with those exposed places. Last but not least, folks, all throughout the book of Nehemiah, we talked about chapter one, but throughout Nehemiah, Nehemiah pulls out the pocket prayer. I've mentioned this a few times. Pocket prayers are very simple, brief, intentional, and genuine prayers. And here are listed some of them. You probably won't be able to read them all. But over the course of Nehemiah's journey, over the course of the wall, the discouragement, the opposition, getting the job done, Nehemiah pulls out these pocket prayers. Folks, Not every time do you have a moment where you can come and and kneel before the Lord at an altar. But Sometimes while you're on the factory line, while you're driving your car, while you're about ready to head into the meeting with the boss, whatever the case may be, you just need to unleash a pocket prayer. A simple, brief, intentional, genuine prayer. You've got to arm yourself with that. He's got people armed with bows and spears and shields. But we've got to arm ourselves with the most important thing. The most powerful thing. Alfred Lord Tennyson. Not a believer. But he said something that really fits here. More things are wrought by prayer than this world knows of meaning more things are manifested in our reality by prayer the divine comes in in the moment God can be unleashed in the moment when we pray the power, the spirit the grace, the wisdom the understanding folks, if you are not a person of prayer I challenge you to start pocket prayer begin with that. Over and over and over, Nehemiah says, remember me, O Lord. Remember me with your favor. Lord, you're going to fight for us. Give us strength in this moment. He's not praying for 10 minutes. He's not praying for an hour. Very quick and simple. Folks, we need people to come around us when we're discouraged. You need people to lift your head and and sometimes you need to be the person to lift the other person's head. Be that. Be that Jalen in hands. Folks, we got to know. We have to identify our exposed places in our life. Otherwise, the sin that so easily entangles will come in and kill and destroy. Call out the opposition by name. If it's Satan, call him out. If it's you, call him out, or yourself out. Or if it's someone else, you've got to name them. If you look in some of Nehemiah's prayers, he even calls out his enemies by name in prayer. You've got to call it out. Last but not least, keep the pocket prayer at the ready all the time. Our hope for you, not only through this series, but as a part of this church, is that you... One, come to Jesus Christ and know Him. But you grow in Him. That you become a strong disciple, a strong woman, a strong man, a strong teenager, and strong kids in faith. And that you step out and you take the risk. But you need to know sometimes when you take that risk, there is opposition. We are shoulder to shoulder with one another because there are people that God loves all around us that need redeemed. So will you please stand for just one moment and we're going to have a pocket prayer. God Almighty, we love you. Bring us people to encourage us. Fortify our exposed places. And Lord, give us wisdom and discernment to call out the enemy who's opposing what you're doing in our life. It's in your name of Jesus we pray. Amen. May you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And will you please love your neighbor as yourself? Go Rams. (laughs) God does not like the Patriots. (laughs) Just kidding. Have a good day. We love you guys.